G'day, g'day, guys. Now, before we dive into today's show, I want to ask you a few quick questions. Are you looking to take your investing career to the next level? Are you wanting an accountability partner who will push you to achieve your goals? Are you needing to surround yourself with successful investors and entrepreneurs in order to up your game and take control of your life? Well, if you've answered yes to any of those questions, I am super pumped and excited to announce that I'm starting the Syndicator Incubator Mastermind Group. This mastermind is a group of highly motivated, abundance-orientated, hand-selected hustlers and entrepreneurs who are ready to take that next step in their investing career. We are now taking applications for the next group of champions. If you're interested to find out more, then email me at info, that's I-N-F-O, at reedgoosens.com and put in the subject line, The Syndicator Incubator. Being a part of this mastermind group, you will have unlimited access to both myself and my business partner, Andrew Campbell, and you will understand how we have been able to build a portfolio of over 1,200 units worth over $120 million in under 24 months, and we've achieved financial freedom in the process. There are once a month mastermind calls with the group and a yearly conference where you will learn from the best in the business. So what are you waiting for? There are only limited spots, so get your application pack by emailing me at info at And remember, be bold, be brave, and go give life a crack. So we are investing in limited service hotels, which means that they don't have a restaurant, but they do have a free breakfast. They have free Wi-Fi. So it doesn't have the food and beverage component to hotels. It usually has a pool and a fitness center, but it does not have a spa, right? So, so that is the differences in, so that, that's the, the differences in the hotel. Welcome to Investing in the US, a podcast for real estate investors, business owners, and aspiring entrepreneurs looking to break into the US market. Join Reed as he interviews go-getters, risk-takers, and the best in the business about their journey towards financial freedom and the sheer joy of creating something from nothing. G'day, g'day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another cracking edition of Investing in the US podcast from Los Angeles. I'm your host, Reed Goosens. Good as always to have you with us on the show. Now, I'm glad that you've all tuned in to learn from my incredible guests, and each and every one of them are the cream of the crop here in the United States when it comes to real estate investing, business investing, and entrepreneurship. Each show, I try and tease out their incredible stories of how they have successfully created their businesses here in the US, how they've created financial freedom, massive amounts of cash flow, and ultimately created extraordinary lives for themselves and their families. Life by design, as I like to say. Hopefully, these guests will inspire all of my cracking listeners, which are you guys, to get off the couch and go and take massive amounts of action. If these guys can do it, so can you. Now, as you know, I'm all about sharing the knowledge with my loyal listeners, which is you guys, and there's absolutely no BS on this show, just straight into the nuts and bolts. Now, if you do like this show, the easiest way to give back is to give us a review on iTunes and you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter by searching at Reed Goosens. You can find the show wherever you podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher and Google Play. But you can also find these episodes up on my YouTube channel. So head over to reedgoosens.com, click on the video link and it will take you to the video recordings of these podcasts where you can see my ugly mug but the beautiful faces of my guests each and every week. All right, enough out of me. Let's get cracking and into today's show. 
Today on the show, I have the pleasure of speaking with Nicole Stoller, the founder and host of the Richer Geek podcast. Now, Nicole helps IT and other high-income professionals find creative ways to build wealth and create financial freedom. Now, she works full-time in technology, and Nicole and her husband have built an incredible real estate investment firm with an impressive portfolio that includes hotels, multifamily, and single-family residences. Now, Nicole believes that it's not only possible, but essential that other high income role or other high income earners find ways to make their money work for them. And she's here to share some of her proven techniques to do just that. I'm really excited and pumped to have her on the show to share her incredible experience insight. But enough out of me, let's get her out here. G'day, Nicole. Welcome to the show. How are you doing today? Hi, Reed. I am really thrilled to be on the show today. Well, thank you so much. Um, before we get into all the nuts and bolts of what you do now, can we? Can you rewind the clock and tell us how you made your first ever dollar as a kid? I love that question. It's so funny because immediately I thought of an experience and a few pieces around that. So my mom used to sew, and she had, but she, she had stopped when I was, let's say, I was around fifth, sixth grade. She'd stopped sewing, and there was all this fabric that was piled up in a closet, right, in her, her craft room, so to speak, and that was right, this was way back in the 80s, right, so there was a trend for people to, women, to girls, to wear hair bows, and I figured out, well, gosh, I can, I can make these. I can sew these myself, and I sewed a few brought them into school. People wanted to buy them. So I started selling them. I created little swatches of the different fabric I had available. And I remember not wanting to tell my mom because I, for some reason, I thought she might tell me to stop. And then she found out secondhand from one of my friend's uh, mothers and was very offended that I didn't share that with her. But it was just something that, you know, I, I don't know why I thought it needed to be a secret. But in any case, I was selling hair bows. And that's a, it started this entrepreneurial journey or, or how did it, how did you get into tech from there? Oh my gosh. Well, so maybe it's clear as I talk about hair bows, I had an affinity for fashion actually. So mm -hmm. I, I was actually a fashion major in college, but then I realized that I didn't want to be a starving artist and that I wanted <laughs> to be in a, a better a better career for longevity and a very needed uh, skill set and capability. So I moved into tech as a result of that. And what's interesting is I will often talk to uh, young girls, high school students about why they should pursue technology. And I want them to know that I actually hated computers for years. And there is a lot of creativity and a lot of interesting things that you can bring to tech. So it's, it actually is a very creative type of uh, type of job career. He's awesome. Awesome. So fill the gap. What, what, what was the transition from, from fashion major into tech just besides the money piece? But, but how did you get over the mental hurdle of being in computers? Yeah, so that's, uh, that's a great question. So I'm a really driven person. And what happened was I basically researched all the different uh, career areas out there. And I found a headhunter and he was recruiting for this kind of entry level sales type of position in tech. And I was going to be interviewing with other people that were computer majors or computer science majors. And I had none of that kind of background. So I went to the library. I checked out a bunch of books. I studied the OSI model, which I still screw up to this day. And I screwed up in the interview. But 
it, it was very apparent to the person that I was interviewing with that I wanted it really badly. I had researched. There were some things that I was name dropping, but they weren't correct. But it was enough for him to say, look, I, I'm going to give you a shot because I can see you're driven. So I got into it as a result of that. And, and OSI for all the layman's out there? Oh, it's it's basically the... the technology layers. So when you, when you as an end user are using a web application, that's like a top layer. And then there's all these other layers underneath that come together to create the full stack that delivers the service that you're using. Interesting. Sounds very technical. <laughs> Hence why it's called tech, right? Yes. Uh, so so what do you, what's your role today? What do you do? For, are you still in sales or have you gone on to do other bigger and better things? I'm still in sales. So I have, okay. I've transitioned initially. I was starting in, that was telecom sales and then moved from there into software. And now I'm in software and hardware. And so I've, gosh, we're talking 22 plus years in sales and I wow. absolutely love it and have a, a pretty good perspective of different areas of the industry as a result. I think you also have a pretty good perspective of just how things have changed and evolved over the years. What have you seen in your career that you were working on 22 years ago compared to what you see today? Well, it's hilarious because when I started, I was trying to convince clients that they needed to get an internet connection. This is, right. this businesses didn't understand why they would need it, right? right I think it right. was pretty clear for some like media, but other types of businesses had no idea why they should even get an internet connection. And the cost of that connection, right, has gone down significantly. And now that the amount that you can purchase way much higher. So I think it's interesting, these cycles that we go through in technology in general, people think, well, I don't need that. I don't have a use case for that. But here's the reality. If it was invented and there are other clients that are starting to leverage it, it will come to you. You will need it. Like, I don't need a website. Yes, you do. In today's world, you do. No matter if you're a right. plumber, what, whatever business you're in, you need a website. Oh, I don't need, um, I don't need digital marketing. Uh, yes, you do in today's world, right? These things that you see others kind of jump on first are coming to all industries. And I think that's pretty fascinating about, about tech. Oh, 100%. And then the next 20 years is going to be completely different. We're sitting, we probably don't even know stuff that's going to be invented in the next 20 years that we're plugging right now in, in terms of, you know, I, I go a little bit off on a tangent, but how uh, social is the big thing, you know, but it's going to die eventually, social media and something else is going to take over uh, its place. But it's like the internet had its, its heyday back in the mid 90s and early 2000s and now it's social media, something else will come and morph into it, you know, the next 20 years, which is so exciting about the world we live in. And I'm sure you being at the forefront of sales and technology, it's just, it's, it's exciting probably for you to see just even sit back and look look back at, to try and persuade someone and a business owner that, yeah, you need internet because if you're not on the internet, no one's going to freaking find you, right? So so awesome stuff. Um, but tell me how you transitioned into this world of real estate investing and passive investing and being a W2 entrepreneur and all this sort of good stuff and, and a little bit about the, the podcast that you've uh, started. When I was also in that process of looking for a different career and making that change, I also was obsessed with personal finance books. And this is something too that, you know, you take finance and you take accounting in college, but that is not personal finance. And so there, there was a whole gap in things that I did not learn and did not understand. So I read the book 
rich dad, poor dad. (laughs) (laughs) And, and I'm also an action taker, like I said, very driven, very uh, action oriented. So I immediately signed my husband and I up for a seminar. Now, here's a couple things. This was at a time when we didn't, we did not have a lot of money. And I signed us up for a seminar that was all about creatively buying property, like property with no money. How can you do Mm -hmm. it, et cetera. And I will say that the seminar was very good in providing that information. We came back and we bought properties, quote unquote, without money. We did take credit card cash advances for down payments. And there was a little bit of of some money that was needed. But the challenge was we did not learn how to actually manage residents, how to evaluate properties. Because just because you find a great deal, you think it's a great deal, but how do you really know it's a great deal? There were so many mistakes we made. So the seminar was kind of just such a narrow slice of everything that's required to have a successful real estate business. And we said, hey, we're committed to this. We read the book. We're committed to building a business. We know that we need to do that, that a W-2 income's not enough. And my husband went to go work for a property manager because I said, Hmm. we've got to learn this somehow. And it would be nice to be paid instead of losing money. So that's a little bit of how we got into it. And then I was, you know, continuing to work full-time in tech. Right. And, and that's still happening today, right? Because your whole thesis is trying to educate other people in IT about the benefits of investing in real estate. So, so talk to me a little bit about that and how you bring up conversations around the water cooler. Well, so I actually, so maybe it goes back to when I was telling you the story about the hair bows and I didn't tell anyone, well, I didn't tell my mom, <laughs> I did tell the people I was selling to. I, I really didn't talk about real estate investing with my coworkers for years and years and years. And my husband was doing that, but it wasn't, it wasn't in some, unless someone asked, I I just didn't really talk about it. Um, I recently started being a little more open about that. And I'll say recently, like within the past three years and people were shocked. Like at that point in time, we owned a hotel. I mean, people just, this isn't, this isn't a conversation that they were expecting to have, but the reality of that is it's not a conversation that you necessarily have with any of your coworkers. And for example, it doesn't come up, hey, what kind of things are you doing outside of your regular, how else are you creating income besides your W-2? You don't ask those questions, so you don't always know. So unless someone says, hey, I'm going to my properties, you don't know those things. Um, So I started this podcast because people started asking me and wanting advice. And the first thing that that was interesting is they wanted advice a lot of times about spaces that I'm not in. But mm-hmm. I thought, but I but I do know people that are in those spaces. So how can I tell those stories? For example, we're not in short-term rentals. So people wanted to know about that. Uh, we don't flip homes. People wanted to know about that. So I, I went out and I said, well, there's other people who are doing that. You just don't know that because you're not talking about that, right? Around the water cooler or whatever the case may be. And then from there, I realize that there's more that other people are doing. Like they own franchises, they started Mm. businesses, they bought convenience stores, they have online businesses all while working full time. And I wanted to tell those stories and provide that encouragement and um, information to people. Yeah. And it's incredible journey to have that mindset shift about taking a W-2 paycheck and then getting it to work for you outside of, you know, of, of just the, the nine to five. And it takes a certain type of someone to want to go do that. And I think 
were you surprised at how many people came out of the woodwork once you started opening up about these stories of real estate investing that you're like, you do franchise and you do convenience store investing? Like, was it was it a lot more than you thought or did you underestimate anyone? It, I would say it is surprising sometimes the people that, that I find out, hey, they're doing something. I go seek people too. I, I search for people that have a, a technology background and then I try to look for keywords that they might have, like for example, on LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but it is a great point. I do think you you will be surprised at the people that are doing things and then the people that aren't because they're mm. too scared or yes, they yes. don't know how they could, they, they, they are scared to take the leap. I get a lot of, actually, I got a lot of questions on that. Like how, how do we get started? We're in analysis paralysis. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I do think too, there's a little bit of an element of you listen to podcasts, even if you listen to mine, you, you're going to hear a lot of different options. And then that can make you get a little, it can be confusing and overwhelming to make those decisions just based on that too. How, how do you, this, this conversation brings up the, the word to me, golden handcuffs, right? For me, it was about creating financial freedom and leaving my W2, even though I was working in ground up construction for another person, you know, I was working hard to make them a lot of money. And, and the whole goal for me was to get and become my own, my own boss. How do you, see that with the golden handcuffs and and the fear and the analysis paralysis in people that they just can't get out of their own way to see the light somewhere else in terms of making in terms of creating financial freedom and building those blocks to to get to that you know to build that foundation in order for them to go and take the jump uh, the leap of faith i think the common advice is to put money into your 401k Mm -hmm. and save so that you're going to retire at 65 or whatever it is that is such a huge percentage of the population. And so to think about you maybe maybe not necessarily diverting those funds, but maybe spending less in your lifestyle so that you can invest other funds, because you know there's a lot of benefits to investing in the market too. Um, I, I think that that is not as commonly talked about. I do think it's it is more and more talked about. There's a whole movement around that. There's, you know, a lot of online, there's podcasts, there's people encouraging people to start thinking that way. But back in like 1999, I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And it's not like I shouted from the rooftops or told people about my experience at that point in time, right? So I think it's a little more accessible now. But I, I do think sometimes people get sort of, they're plugging away, they like their job, which, you know, this is something I talk about. I, I, I love my job. There's so many great benefits that I get as a result if I'm very competitive and I get contracts and there's, there's a lot of things to that. Um, but they get into, you know, working and the mindset, then having a family and then doing things, you know, that, that are relating to your family, which is all totally fine. But they maybe think, I don't have the space to think about something else or that's too iffy. Uh, that's yep. too risky. Oh, I remember the crash in real estate's <laughs> terrible investment, right? So, you know, I'm just, <laughs> I'm yeah. just relaying some of the things I, I think people might be thinking. No, no, I think that's correct because we get so caught up in our own world. I think what you're trying to say is that you get the blinkers on, right? And it's just your TV that you're looking at and you can't be told or, oh no, someone said this. So my uncle Joe said real estate's bad. So I'm not going to get involved in it or it's too risky to your point. So uh, it's interesting you you see that side of the coin because for, for me, I see the other side of the coin where it's like, 
so many people were jaded from 2009, 2008 that they just like, screw the system. I'm going to go out and, you know, blow it up and become my own boss. Uh, and that's definitely the world that I've come from where it's like, screw safety, screw, because I could have, a, this company could be gone under tomorrow and I don't have a job. Um, so there's a lot of that. So there's a, there's a lot of different dynamics going on, which what you're seeing versus what I'm seeing, but it's, it, but it's all healthy and it's, it, it, adds, it adds to an awesome conversation. Um, talk to me about the journey of you and your husband in creating your real estate investment firm. And like you said, you in the green room before we press record here that you were investing in hotels. You want to talk a little bit, a little bit about that? Sure. We, we did start because my husband worked for a property management company that was basically building and then managing their own apartment complexes. Our roots were in multifamily and we started buying and got into multifamily properties. And I, I will make a note too, we were doing all of this with our, with our own funds, our own capital. And of course, you know, commercial loans from the bank, but in general, we weren't really raising money or raising funds from investors. And we it got an uns so we basically traded up, used 1031 uh, exchange capabilities to trade up from one property to another to another. And in 2016, we got uh, this is when our market, we're in Phoenix when multifamily started to become really hot in Phoenix and it's still hot. And it's mm -hmm. four years later, <laughs> but, but it was hot in 2016 and we got an unsolicited offer. We had a, a 50 unit apartment complex at the time and we turned it down, came back three times because the person was under 1031 exchange. And at that point in time, we said, gosh, you know, we should probably take this. Like we didn't think, and by the way, hindsight 2020 should not have taken it, waited four more years. Cause I mean, it's just crazy, but it's a little, it's a little crazy how it's kind of uh, blown up in the Phoenix market. But at the time we said, okay, if we're going to sell this, what would we then 1031 into? And we could not find a multifamily property that met our criteria. Cap rates were already compressed. So we were, I mean, we were probably six, seven cap rate in 2016. Now it's five and below, right? And it just, to us, we thought for the amount of work and my husband does the management of the properties for the amount of work, we just, we didn't feel like it was the, the right way to go. Prior to that, backing up a little bit, about two years prior, we had actually been introduced by our broker to a hotel guy, a 20-year hotel veteran. He was going to do a new hotel build. And our broker introduced us and said, hey, you guys may want to partner because we were looking for more properties, but sometimes half the battle is just finding something. And so right. he introduced us to the hotel guy. We were having these conversations. We didn't end up moving forward, which is a whole other story, but still had a great relationship with the hotel guy. And when we got the offer in 2016, we called him up and we said, do you know of any hotels that are off market that we could maybe 1031 exchange into? So uh, that was at a point, hotels we're not a hot, hot market. So we were able to get a good deal. We are, were able to uh, see, you know, growth and value add and all the things that we would be looking for. But there's complications to that. That's a business we're not in and we didn't have experience. So getting a loan 
uh, is not the same, you know, when you don't have any experience. So he actually became a operations partner for us mm-hmm. in, in that property and then helped really train us so that we understood, you know, what are we looking for? What are the levers? What can we do? And then we went and purchased our next hotel and we just closed on that in November of 2019. And he was a part of that as well. I'm interrupting this episode to remind you guys about the Syndicator Incubator Mastermind Group. If you want to take your investing career to the next level and surround yourself with the best in the business, then apply today. Spots are filling up fast. I'm only taking a handful of people for the next round, so get your application by emailing me at info, I-N-F-O, at reedgoosens.com. Remember, be bold, be brave, and go give life a crack. Now back into the show. Wow! And what what type of hotels are you buying? What flag? Uh, for those people out there who don't know what flags mean, it's different grades of hotels. You have a, a a units, B units, C units, D units. In in hotels, there's one star, two star, three star, four star, all the way up to five star. Right. So so what star category are you investing in? Um, we are investing in it's we. I don't. I haven't heard it. Uh, title by star per se, but um, service level. So mm-hmm. we are investing in limited service hotels, which means that they don't have a restaurant, but they do have a free breakfast. They have free mm-hmm. Wi-Fi. So it doesn't have the food and beverage component yep. to hotels. It usually has a pool and a fitness center, but it does not have a spa, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so that is the differences in so that that's the the differences in the hotel. And yes, so we are buying a flagged hotel and a couple of different brands. So it would be in the Choice brand, Radisson brand, IHG, which would be like your Holiday Inn Express. Those types of brands yep. have that select limited. So Hilton has Mid- a few as well. Yeah, like mid-tier, probably like a... T- three or two to two to four star depending on the level of upgrade the reason i i know a little bit about this is i worked for a developer actually who's based in uh phoenix ensemble real estate investments they have a bunch of hotels but on the higher end you know we're talking about their uh, courtyard by marriott type of flags um with with the fmb the food and beverage um you know a lot more hyatt house another one just sort of like that four star or, or above um, but yeah, very interesting. It's a very interesting concept because there's a, now are you buying existing hotels and reflagging them and doing the value add? What are you doing in that, that sense there? We are buying existing hotels. If we are in the middle of a reflag remodel and in the hotel industry, it's called a PIP, a performance mm-hmm. yep. improvement plan. Exactly. And uh, that's part of, that sounds like a bad thing, right? If you're a W2 <laughs> employee and you're listening to this, you're, you're thinking a PIP, that's like, bad. It's, it, I don't know why they call it that, but essentially it is, it is a standard set by the brand that can change. They may change their logo. They may change their requirements. Uh, for example, they may require you to have an elevator if you previously mm-hmm. only had stairs. So those kinds of things come into their brand standard and they, they can change on a regular basis. So even if you are under a specific brand and you're in like a 20 year contract, you may still have those upgrades. And this is just a matter of, and I, I completely get this as a traveler, the, the biggest thing you have at, for the, the branded hotels is you have loyalty and you mm-hmm. have 
this is exactly what I'm going to get when I stay in this hotel. And especially in our case, we're catering to business travelers. They're wanting to come in. They want this, they want the same look and feel. They want to know what they're getting. They don't want a surprise. And that's what the brand is trying to maintain. So yes. Right. And for those listeners out there, when you talk about a brand standard, it means that if you choose a flag like Holiday Inn or Hyatt House, it's typically like they have everything picked out for you. Like besides maybe a little bit, I know when I worked for the developer on a ground up construction in Menlo Park in San Francisco Bay Area, really it came down to the the lobby was the only area you really had an architect or a designer come in to, to spruce it up and make it sexy. But everything from rooms to conference rooms to the fitness center, like this is the carpet, this is the, this is the granite countertops, these are the light fixtures, and you can't you know deviate much from the spec from the spec, which is good from an operations point of view because it makes it very efficient because you can hand it over to a GC and it's like this is what I want, don't screw it up, <laughs> and then you got to go through with the quality quality control and assurance. Um, so from an operations point of view, do you hire? A, is it a third party or do you have to do it all? Um, like like the multifamily you know game, you, you have a third party property manager. Do you have a third party hotel manager that comes in and, and does does all, all the operations and services? Yes and no. So in what <laughs> in our first hotel, yes, we do have a and there is exactly that same con- concept. The hotel property management company. We still hire a general manager. And we still have the staff where the property management company comes in is they handle, um, they handle paying the bills, uh, they handle staffing. So hotels are 24 seven. If you suddenly have your uh, night shift person call in, they have a temporary person that can fill in for you. So that's a really, really nice service there. Uh, but they handle, you know, kind of that dated payroll, those types of things. In the second hotel that we just purchased, in that case, we do not have a management company. We do have a very, very strong general manager. So the, the choice that we made was, do, do we pay more for a general manager who has more years of experience who can really fulfill a lot of those capabilities because of the expertise that that general manager brings to the table? So that's the difference. Yeah, and, and for, for those people listening, a general manager is pretty much the the keys to the kingdom in terms of success of, of an asset. And 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 like a multifamily, if you have a bad property lead property manager, you know, your your asset can go sideways. Same with the general manager. They they sort of oversee the operations, right? Am I, am I correct, Nicole? That, that that they are the, the linchpin. If you have a bad one, you can get out of the gates pretty bad and then everything it's a it's a catch up game, right? Yeah, this is when owning a hotel is like, it is a business. And Mm -hmm. so in any business, the manager, the communication, the morale of the employees on site day to day, that's a big part of, of what he's doing. He's looking at forecasting. He's constantly looking at our occupancy rates, those types of things. And Your then we bring in and all a what? All that sort of stuff. what? The, the average daily price or value. What's it called? The a, ADR. Uh, ADR. I, the, the every daily rate. You're right. I was right. Yeah. Yep. So, um, but it's so. So where you're investing? Are you only investing in in Phoenix, or are you investing in other other markets as well? We are only investing in Phoenix right now. It's just we. We love this market. We know what's going on. So if someone were to say, oh, I have a a hotel available in this location, we immediately can see it like in our heads and we know, okay, there's new businesses coming in there or there's a new freeway. 
that kind of information, we don't, we don't have to research because we know it. We're also very connected to the market, very involved, uh, active in uh, organizations like Rotary and military support organizations. And so it, it really helps. It, we also have our team of people here. So um, we have not ventured out of Phoenix, mostly because we've just, we've been able to find what we want here, obviously not apartment complexes, but uh, moving into hotels. From a high level point of view, if you're a passive investor getting involved in a hotel deal, what what are some of the market metrics you look at that that one needs to look at when you're assessing a deal? Because for me, being an Aussie coming to the United States, and I see these massive freeways in the middle of nowhere, and then there's three little short short stay hotels that are on the side of the highway. I'm like, who the hell is staying in those in this middle of nowhere? Like, what what, what metrics do you use when you look at that sort of stuff? Well, one of the first things is you are looking at the demand drivers. I do not know about those in the middle of in the middle of nowhere. It's it's a great point, but but demand drivers would be uh, businesses that are coming in, freeways, universities, hospitals, those types of things that bring consistency to groups of people that want to stay. And employers are a big one for us because we look for contracts with companies that want 20 rooms because they've brought in people for training. And so those are, that's a really good, uh, really good space. And then close proximity to things just like apartment complexes where entertainment, restaurants, shopping, things that people want to be close by. So a l- very similar in that respect. Um, but there's amazing reporting in the hotel industry. There's something called this, the star report, yep. which, which is, you get this every week and it's third party. So it's not from the company that you're working with and it compares you to your, they call it the comp set. So to your competitors who are in the similar class of service. So someone who stays in a courtyard, they're staying there one, maybe they really like Marriott, but they're staying there cause they know it has a restaurant right? They, they, they want those things. So if they're not going to, if the Marriott's booked, they're going to look for a similar type of hotel that gives them those things that they want. So then that becomes a comp set. So in our comp set, you can see how are the others performing? And it gives you a good idea of what you're looking at, what your opportunity is. Do you think that suddenly you're going to be super crazy and you're going to outperform them by X? It might be a little bit hard to do. I mean, the reality is the market is where the market is kind of like, um, it's like looking at uh, rental, like looking at your your monthly rental amounts that you're getting in multifamily. You, you Unless you are bringing something just so amazing to that resident, they're not going to pay 2X, right? right. So similar kind of thing in, in the hotel space. And, and how are you finding these deals, meaning that they are distressed? Like what... With all this, I assume the existing hotel owner knows that there's jobs in the area, and you know. So, so why are they selling if 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 it is in a in a good area that you like? Yeah. So this how this hotel that we just bought, I think that it can be really attributed to a couple of things. The it it was a different flag when the current the previous owner bought it, and that that was a Marriott, and the Marriott said, hey we are no longer going to allow 
you to have the flag for this type of hotel because the building's too old. We don't mm -hmm. want this kind of footprint anymore. It wasn't anything that, that he did wrong. It was just, this is not going to be part of our brand standard. So you've got to go find a new flag. So I think that the new flag that he chose was not congruent with his personality. I think right. that was a big part of it. He conducted part of the PIP, but had another large portion to happen, converted the hotel during the high season in Phoenix. So we're very cyclical here. Unlike some places in the country or not, Orlando is more year round. Phoenix is cyclical. So we have uh, a very difficult time in occupancy rates during July, August, those timeframes. Right. Yeah. So he did the conversion and didn't really have a brand during that conversion process. So you, what that means is you can't find him. So mm. you're, you're Googling, you're looking for a hotel. It's not a branded hotel. And then every goes, everybody goes, what is that weird hotel? It doesn't have a brand. <laughs> like, it's just weird, right? Yeah, it really yeah, is when yeah. you're talking about limited service, not a boutique hotel, not a resort hotel, but like just a select service hotel that has no brand. In any case, that's where he was in our high season. So his revenues were way down. It was a very bad timing. So some bad choices, I think maybe not fully understanding. Uh, so the revenues were, the comparable revenues from previous year were at a level that enabled us to get a better deal because we said, look, mm -hmm. we're going to buy on actuals and your actuals are not that good. <laughs> Even though we knew that, you know, these were part of the reason and the transition. And I think the, you bring up a good point that he's trying to go out on a whim to do his own no frills brand. But part of the benefits of being under a Marriott or a Hyatt House or some of these, you know, Courtyard or whatever these big brands are is that they help drive traffic to the property, right? Because they get to advertise your Phoenix, whatever it is, um, Hyatt House or Holiday Inn. And then those people who know and want that particular type of product will keep coming there, right? They'll choose you because they stayed in the exact same hotel in Orlando or in New York or in Miami. And they just come to you because they know what they're going to expect from the service, right? Absolutely. That's a huge piece of it. Yeah, exactly. So, Nicole, with all this investing, when when's the day that the uh, I don't know if you can speak too loudly. When's the day you're going to break out and become a hotel mogul? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I I like the balance. So my husband is full time handling uh -huh. our business and and hand and working with our team of people. I I think it is nice to have some separation <laughs> and, uh, and I'm doing my own thing. Although I do kind of, uh, you know, also get very involved in a lot of the pieces, but I'm not handling the day to day. And, uh, you know, I just, I think that there are so many cool things happening in technology too. It's almost like this. It's really hard to choose. Maybe that's mm -hmm. a good way to say it. like this, just when you enjoy what you're doing, it's hard to say, I don't want to do that anymore. Right. Don't, don't, don't fix what ain't broke. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what does 2020 have in store? Are you going to buy any more hotels in Phoenix? Are you trying to grow the portfolio? We will potentially buy another hotel in 2020. We, we, uh, this hotel that we just purchased in November was our first time doing a syndication. And mm -hmm. as a result of that, we've had a lot of people approach us now kind of saying, okay, when are you going to buy your next one? And, and I would say that we're, we're at that same situation where we had to be really, really careful. When you're buying any asset, I think in today's market, you have to be really careful because a lot of things are inflated. And uh, 
you know, finding a deal is probably the biggest challenge right now. And so we look at a lot of hotels and uh, I don't know. So we'd like to, but, but it's a matter of finding something that, that works well. Sure, 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 sure. And, and for the personal podcasting, any, any aspirations and goals for 2020 to grow that into something more and inspire more people? I, oh my gosh, having the podcast is so much fun. I, I enjoy meeting people and I'm meeting people like you and I'm sure you feel the same. And I also love that I have an excuse to reach out to people and ask them <laughs> to be on my podcast. Um, I I think I will be trying to get more tech people because I find originally that people are a little intimidated by being on a podcast mm-hmm. and it's not comfortable for them. I'm, I'm coming out of the blue and asking them, but as more and more people do that, I think, uh, I think it'll be more comfortable for others as they hear, this isn't a professional person going on a bunch of different podcasts. They're just coming and telling their story. Right, right. Well, I, I, I'm so excited for the growth and, and to hear about you more. And I'd love to get you back on the show to, to, to share your story with us. But I do want to be conscious of your time. Um, at the end of every show, we have a sort of a lightning round of the top five investing tips. And I'm wondering if you want to get dive into that right now. Sure. What is the daily habit that you practice to keep on track towards your goals? I get up really early. I'm talking 3 a.m. 3 a.m. Everybody that I work with knows this. I get up early and I have two solid hours where I am writing down the top three things that have to happen for the day. If nothing else happens, because you have to kind of cut through the noise. Mm -hmm. I am organizing my thoughts. And then, of course, I am doing more of my deeper, deeper project work during that two-hour time frame. That's really, really disciplined. That's, uh, that's awesome. Do you like sleep or not? <laughs> <laughs> so I go to bed early. <laughs> that's part of it too. And that's also everybody teases me about that as well. Yeah, we have to. If you're getting up at 3 a.m., you've exactly. got to go to bed really bloody early. Um, who is the most influential person in your career today? In my career today? Or even to date, like, you know, over back in, back in time. Oh, wow. That's such a great question. I'm going to say the person who gave me a shot to get into tech and uh, that saw through, even though I messed up the layers of the OSI model, that it was that I was really going to work very hard. And if I had never gotten that shot, I wouldn't, I, none, I wouldn't have it wouldn't just be that I wouldn't be in tech. We wouldn't have had built our investments. None of that would have happened. Right. I think that's, I, I thought you were going to say that because someone who gives you someone else a shot, just seeing the hunger and the drive, and it seems like you've got it in it's plentiful, plentiful amount is, uh, is really, really awesome. Uh, what is the most influential tool in your business? And when I say tool, it could be a software like an app, or it could be a hardware like, you know, a notepad or, or a mobile phone. What, what is the most influential tool in your business today? It is called Todoist. Mm-hmm. And know exactly what it is. Yes. Yeah. Uh, the reason is that, especially because I've got dual things going, well, maybe three things going on. So I've got the full-time job, I've got podcasts, and I've also got uh, the, the real estate investing in the pieces that I do around that. And it is easy for things to slip through the cracks. But what I love about Todoist is, is it's not only creating your to-do list, 
uh, and popping up reminders and pushing things out. And it's nice because it's like, well, you just write yourself a little note and then you say, oh, okay, it's not that big of a deal. It can happen in two days, right? But the biggest thing I actually like about it is the ability to flag emails for follow-up because what happens is send out a note. And that, it depends, but that, that, that may, you may never hear back again and you need that answer, but you forgot it because you've got a bunch of other things going on. So I love the reminders to follow up with people. That's awesome. That's awesome. In one sentence, can you sum up the biggest failure that you've had in your career to date? And what did you learn from that failure? The biggest failure is not seeing the full picture. And what I learned from that is that if you're learning one, uh, if you're understanding one piece of it, there are other pieces you haven't thought of. Mm. And I would say you, you need a mentor or you need someone to help you through that. Someone, someone there's a sounding board to say, have you thought about this, right? Yeah. Awesome. Awesome stuff. Well, Nicole, last question is where can people reach you to continue the conversation? They want to be in more of your sphere and find out a little bit more about what you do. Where do they go? Two places, LinkedIn. You can find me there. And also at, uh, at my podcast website, which is the richer, R-I-C-H-E-R geek.com. Awesome stuff. Well, I want to thank you for taking some time to jump onto this show today. I just want to reflect some of the things that I took away from today's show. I think the major thing that you've got going on spades is your drive. I can see that from from the moment you put turn the, the camera on and, and, and the whole hustle about transitioning from an art student into a tech world that you had no idea about, but you were driven to get that and make it happen. I think that's really, really admirable. Um, also talking a little bit more nuts and bolts about the hotel investing. Really, really interesting. I haven't had a lot of hotel investors on this podcast but know a lot about it and, and in terms of enough to be dangerous. But it seems like you're out there crushing it with your with your goals and and understanding the ins and outs and, and really, you know, giving back in terms of your podcast and helping others in the W2 entrepreneur role and inspiring them to take some actions. So, um, so yeah, did, did I leave anything out? No, that's a great summary. Awesome, awesome. Well, I want to thank you again for dropping by. Enjoy the rest of your week and we will catch up very, very soon. Thanks so much, Reed. Well, there you have another cracking episode jam-packed with some incredible advice from Nicole. Please do head over to her website uh, at therichergeekpodcast.com. We'll have all the links from today's show in my show notes. Um, I want to thank you all again for taking some time out of your day to tune in to continue to grow your financial IQ because that's what we're all about here on this show. And we're going to do it all again next week. So be bold, be brave, and remember, go give life a crack.